Dave realizes he's going the wrong way and finds some slings wrapped around a boulder. He's following in the footsteps of another climber that has made the same mistake. He quickly lowers off this anchor back to my ledge and pulls the rope, and it's my turn. The feeling of dread hits me again. We gotta get out of here, man. We study the topo and realize we need to get out on the main face of the wall and go right instead of left. The face section has no protection and is right above a massive boulder, above a chimney gash that we can't see the end of. A fall would be disastrous. I'm mentally tired and drained, and I can't complete the moves. Welcome to episode 21 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mehal. This is our second bonus episode, and this one is a story that, in retrospect, I wish I would have included in American Climber. I reference it, but I don't get into it. So I want to tell you guys the story here. It's about an ascent of the Painted Wall. In, uh, it's the tallest wall in Colorado in the Black Canyon. My buddy Dave Ahrens and I had quite the adventure on it. If you want to support this podcast, please check out the links in your show notes. Pick up some zines, pick up a book or some merch. Follow us on this journey that we're having. We don't know where we're going, but we think it's going to be pretty good. And also, if you are just stumbling upon this podcast, the bonus episodes stand alone, but episodes 1 through 19 are consecutive. They're all in order, and they all are telling a story that is my memoir, American Climber. Let's get into episode 21, The Painted Wall. It's like any other start to a day of climbing in the Black Canyon. Dave and I are up before the sun, throwing down coffee and a quick breakfast, and assembling all the hardware needed for the day's climb. We gently descend down the cruise gully, careful not to dislodge any loose rocks, with thoughts that some climbers could be below us. Though our start was early, so early it seemed like we might be the first people awake on the planet, we hear other climbers clinking and clankering around in camp before us. Setting up first rappel, we hear a group just behind us. We both reach the base of the climb near the same time. The sun has finally risen, and we look up to 1,600 feet of granite above us. Looking down the canyon is the Gunnison River, frothy and green. We strike up a friendly conversation with the other group of climbers. One of them is from Durango, Colorado, where I'm about to move to from Gunnison. The duo seems eager to get on the wall, so we agree to let them go first as the climb we are doing is shares the first pitch with theirs. The climb, the cruise, is going fantastically well. We end up climbing a little faster than the other party and are ahead of them when the two climbs intersect again. The pace and progress is extremely satisfying. Many years ago, I did the same climb with my friend Gene, and we got stuck on the wall overnight without any sleeping gear and spent what seemed like an eternity waiting for the sun to rise, shivering in the depths of the deep, dark, Black Canyon. At the belay ledge where the climbs come back together, I start talking with the other party. The guy from Durango who is leading every pitch is friendly, so we talk it up while belaying. I start to pick his brain about his favorite climbs in the black, and he mentions the southern arete on the painted wall, with an incredible finger and hand crack way up high on the main face. 
Soon, it's time to climb again as we progress up the wall. The rest of the cruise is a cruise, and we top out before the sun goes down, heading straight back to camp to chug Gatorade, eat some food, and eventually have the celebratory beer. The feeling after climbing that much rock is intoxicating, a high of a day well spent in the vertical with a good friend. Dave and I are beyond good friends, though. We are climbing partners for life. Ten years of climbing adventures have solidified our partnership and friendship and the cruise is one of those longer routes we have done together. In climbing, when you're young and you've got a solid partner to climb another day with, the feeling of success always leads to the inevitable conversation of what route is next. In the safety of the horizontal, talk turns to the next climb in the black. We mention several routes, and I bring up the painted wall. Neither of us have climbed the wall, the tallest cliff in Colorado. Since I'm about to move away from Gunnison, I think that climbing the painted wall would be a good way to commemorate the 11 years I spent there. Dave seems keen on the idea, and we make plans to return to the almighty Black Canyon. The three weeks after we climb the cruise are a blur. Since I recently quit my job, I'm unemployed with very little responsibility. I slack off at home, drinking too much beer, eating too much ice cream, and watching too much television. When Dave and I reconnect and plan to climb the painted wall, I am not only excited to do the route, but my body and soul need to climb. I gather as much information as possible about the Southern Arete, though mostly from friends who have done the route. I try to stay away from the internet forums. The black scares many climbers away, and reading about some stranger's horrific experience on the route just might taint my image of the climb. All of my friends report that the route is long, very long, When you think you're at the top, you probably still have a ways to go. The hike back is an endeavor in itself, and a couple of my friends tell me stories about wandering around the rim of the canyon in the dark, stumbling for hours without food or water. Dave and I decide to meet up in the afternoon the day before the climb and scope out the trail to the top of the painted wall. We stash a jug of water in the black. One almost always runs out of water on the climb. The night before the climb, I am tired, but wired. I eventually fall into a restless sleep, my internal clock just waiting for the annoying alarm on my cell phone to go off at 4.30, and I wake up several times in the night thinking that it's time to wake up. Breakfast, coffee, it's all hurried, like always. I feel like I haven't really slept. It's a colder morning than when we did the cruise. It's October now, and the cool Colorado air seeps into our bodies and under our skin. We begin hiking down the SOB gully, stepping down boulder after boulder, descending into the canyon. After an hour, the sun is up, and the painted wall is before us, proud, provoking fear, but at the same time, encouraging courage. Large, pink, pegmatite bands run through the wall, like brushstrokes from Mother Nature. Some of the peg bands explode like lightning across the wall. Other sections of peg near the top of the formation are 70 to 80 feet tall and hundreds of feet across. The larger peg bands near the top of the wall resemble dragons, and hardcore Black Canyon climbers have horrific tales of climbing these features. All around us are other big walls, granite in every direction. The Gunnison River rages through the canyon. Small waterfalls produce frothy white water as the water flows past boulders that fell off the canyon walls many moons ago. All this wild rock scenery with no other climbers in sight. Some walls are better to look at than to climb. 
The closer we get to the painted wall, the uglier it appears. In the Black Canyon Guidebook, it is described as an overhanging scree field. In the last 10 years I've been climbing in the canyon, it is the only wall I've regularly heard stories about sections of climb falling off the wall. Yes, that's right, a pitch of the climb literally coming undone from the wall, adding to the scree fields below. From afar, it is a masterpiece. Up close, the loose rock and questionable features are more visible. Any climber that does one more than one route on this wall is a true lover of the brutal Black Canyon. We slam water in the approach and fill up our water bottles in the river, adding iodine tablets for purification near the beach lake campsites that brave fishermen and even braver whitewater kayakers use. For some reason, we linger at the river as if we have time to. Finally, we make the last approach to the start of the climb. I take note that even Dave, an alpine climber who has seen his fair share of choss, makes multiple remarks about how loose the climb is. We're enjoying ourselves, slowly progressing up the wall and into a long chimney off with system. The chimneys demand complete focus and concentration as the protection is sparse. 40 feet of chimney climbing without gear is common, and we wiggle ourselves into the cracks, facing the fear of the situation. The climb is full of booty, Gear left behind from another party that had to retreat. I take time to move some of the gear, mostly nuts, slings, and carabiners. There isn't a bolt or a fixed anchor anywhere on this route, typical style of a Black Canyon climb. It's a style I'm grateful that the pioneers of the canyon established, one that forces the climber to be creative with gear and rise to the challenge of an occasional runout. The chimney pitches go on and on, and I sense that feeling of dread that many have felt in the Black Canyon. Are we moving fast enough? After leading a block of pitches, we're finally out of the chimney system. When Dave reaches my perch, a comfortable-sized ledge, I glance at the watch he's got in his harness. It's getting late, and it's time to get off this damn wall. Dave takes a quick glance at the topo and leads off into a run-out 5-9 section, completing the dangerous portion quickly. Then, he takes a wrong turn, heading left into no-man's land. He realizes he's going the wrong way and finds some slings wrapped around a boulder, following in the footsteps of another climber that made the same mistake. He quickly lowers off this anchor, back to my ledge, and pulls the rope. And now it's my turn. The feeling of dread hits me again. We gotta get out of here, man. We study the topo and realize we need to get out on the main face of the wall and go right instead of left. The face section has no protection and is right above a massive boulder above a chimney gash that we can't see the end of. A fall would be disastrous. I'm mentally tired and drained, and I can't complete the moves. We study the topo and the wall again. By this time, the sun is setting, and it won't be long before the light leaves us. We are perplexed by the wall and what we should do. We know we need to climb, but we can't figure out which way to go. As the sun keeps setting, more dread comes over us. We're about to be stuck on the wall without bivy gear for the night. You've got that lighter, right, Dave? I immediately begin a scour of the ledge for meager pieces of twigs and branches from the prickle and Mormon tea bushes, assembling a humble pile. We pick out where we're going to sleep. There's a small section where we can both lie down in the fetal position, with small rocks built around it, evidence that other climbers have been in our situation before. Stuck on the 2,300-foot painted wall, for an unplanned bivouac. 
The dread overcomes us for about an hour until we sink into the despair of the situation. Then it's not so bad. It's a waiting game. We have jackets and hats and gloves and layers and some twigs to burn, so we probably won't become hypothermic. Most importantly, we are in good company. Dave and I have spent several nights together in the vertical world. Conversation is minimal, but both Dave and I stay positive. At one point he tells me, well, if there is anyone up here I'd want to be benighted with, it would be you. Dave is an accomplished climber, and I take the comment to heart. Neither of us blames the other for the grim night we have ahead of us. The night sky is clear. Another positive sign will be found on the wall. We watch the stars as if they were the big screen. Slowly they appear in the night. Soon the sky is an expansive array of stars. Dave points out some constellations that I'd never seen before, and I have forgotten and will forget until I see them again on another starry night and then remember. The stars change as we watch them. They represent the only light in the sky, save for the occasional airplane. The new moon is barely even a sliver. We curl up, spooning together to make vain attempts at sleep. The sleep is not real sleep, but the mind starts to dream for a second, and still it realizes that the only dreams that will be had that night are the lucid dreams of staring at stars and realizing you are cold and stuck on this wall. I keep pestering Dave to burn some of the twigs for warmth, probably once every half an hour. At two in the morning, he gives in. His reluctance to start burning the small branches was smart. They last until the first rays of the morning sun come from over the rim of the canyon. We eat breakfast, a gel for me and a granola bar for Dave, but no water to wash it down. We wait for the sun to hit us, to warm us up. Eventually it does, and we stare up the wall, looking to unlock the sequence of where to go. We're both dehydrated and fatigued. All we want to do is get off the wall. Going down isn't an option. We'd lose half our rack if we decided to repel. After staring at the granite wall as if it were a chessboard and trying to decide our next move, I make the decision to try a different way than the topo from the guidebook suggests, a traversing section which looks like there could be some cracks for gear, unlike the run-out section that the guide describes. The feeling as I start to lead out is more dread and fear, but the motion of climbing on with risk is not as bad as the initial dread. I place some gear and traverse out, looking up on the wall for the finger and hand crack that's supposed to be the finest climbing on the route. My heart pumping, my muscles feeling the burn of the night without sleep and water, I move delicately on decent but lichen-covered holds. Every move, a prayer that the climb will continue without a fall. Eventually, I secure more good gear in the grassy cracks, and I spot the beautiful finger and hand crack above. I build a belay and bring Dave up. We manage the crux pitch, exhausted, pulling on gear for progress, whatever it takes. The rest of the climb wanders up loose sections of granite with more loose blocks everywhere. When we think we're at the top, we're not. A final section of moderate cracks through the pink pegmatite, and we are at the rim, done with the climbing. Dave, appearing exhausted but relieved, gives me a big hug, and a weight is carried off my shoulders. Finally, in a rush of endorphins, the suffering in the wall is rewarded. A wave of relief and happiness overcomes me. We wander through the woods to find the hiking trail that will lead us to camp. Every step is a challenge. With no trail to guide us, we just wander, with Dave's sense of direction guiding us. Ten minutes in, I step on a cactus, and it latches onto my ankle. I scream out in pain and then remove it. Five minutes later, I step on another one. 
Finally, we hit the trail, and after stumbling along for 20 minutes, we retrieve the stash jug of water. Dave gets it out of the tree and insists I have the first sip. The sensation and taste is better than any drink I've tasted in my life. We savor the half gallon. It goes quickly, but is enough to snap us back to life as we continue on the trail. Just as the trail ends and the ranger station appears in the horizon, so does Ryan, a climbing ranger who is also a friend from Gunnison, about to set on a jog to check out on us. We hop in Dave's truck to drive to our campsite to recover. The fruits of the world put us in a dreamlike state of satisfaction, and we bask in being young and alive. First is the satisfaction of water, then food, then finally beer. We build a proper fire, and I'm so tired I start to hallucinate watching the coals of the fire. Crawling into my tent at the end of the evening, I feel like a king to be in a sleeping bag. The next morning, the endorphin high or adrenaline or whatever is still present. A feeling of accomplishment and relief. The world is ours to be had. Dave and I discuss where we went wrong, wasting time here and there. In this moment of repose, we can't take back anything. We can only learn from the lessons and improve our efficiency with time. Besides, we still felt as if we'd accomplished something. We climbed the biggest wall in Colorado. And isn't the sole point of climbing how you feel while you're doing it and afterwards in the celebration of it all? That was the end of the Black Canyon season for us. But the climbing season continued. I moved to Durango where the beginning of the winter was exceptionally warm until the snow finally came. One day, A.D. Stanimus, the local crag, Arena DeMarcus, the fellow from Durango we climb alongside the cruise. He asked me if I made it back to the Black after that route. I replied that I had, and we ended up doing the Southern Arrette upon his recommendation. He smiled and gave a look only a fellow climber who had climbed the route as well could give. It's a long one, isn't it? He said. I thought for a second to go into the details of the climb, the benightment, and all that, but decided not to. I simply replied, it is a long one. My mind drifted off to the Black Canyon. That was episode 21 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. This essay is also published in the Climbing Zine book, which is a hardcover 256-page book with 32 of our best stories from volumes 1 through 11. Some of the first zines, especially 1 through 11, had very small print runs, and these stories are still really great stories and less people have read them because they had lower print runs and we decided to put them all in a book and you can get that book at the link in our show notes and it's a beautiful awesome book and i've heard of more than one climber telling me it's it's been their road trip companion this fall music for this episode came from ketza chad rich is our digital editor and producer i'm luke mihal signing off from Durango, Colorado. Peace.